Well, good morning. It was good to have Pastor Michael in the pulpit last week. Thank you, Pastor, for covering. And uh, we are journeying through the book of Nehemiah. And if this is your first Sunday here, we're in chapter 9. So if you would, please turn to Nehemiah chapter 9. And let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning. And we thank you that your mercies are new every morning. And indeed, they are great because your faithfulness is great. Father, we move into a scene here in the book of Nehemiah. The wall has been completed. The task on one level has been done, but there's still a need to repair hearts, to restore the people. Father, give us some eyes to see the text, ears to listen as we reflect on this event that occurred 400 and some B.C., and yet it's relevant because you have spoken this word. It's historically accurate, it's reliable, and it's one that can pierce the very heart as Paul records to Timothy. So Father, guide us as we go to the text. Thank you for your word in Jesus' name, amen. In 1904, in the country of Wales, an amazing thing occurred. Drunkenness was cut in half. Most of the taverns were closed. In fact, judges were given, the courts were given white gloves to indicate there were no cases of murder, assault, rape, or robbery. You ask, well, what happened in 1904 in the country of Wales? I mean, was it a social initiative that had been installed, or uh, was there an educational implementation or a community program? The answer to all of those is no. In 1904, a revival occurred, a revival that many scholars argue it was the greatest revival in church history. It's estimated that over 5 million converts, uh, converts occurred because of what happened in Wells that then spilled out across the globe. In fact, Edwin Orr in his book, The Flaming Tongue Evangelical Awakenings, gives this account in Wales that, that the workers in the coal mines, the work stopped and the thought was, well, was there a tension between the employers, the, the management, and the workers? No, it's because they stopped using foul language and the donkeys couldn't respond because they didn't know what to do. <laughs> That's a revival, right, that occurred in Wales in 1904. What is a revival? Well, a revival is an event in the life of God's people when the presence of God is displayed in powerful manifestation of the Holy Spirit. Town and Porter and their work on revival state, an evangelical revival is an extraordinary work of God in which Christians repent of their sins, listen to this, as they become intensely aware of God in their midst. They manifest a positive response to God in renewed obedience to the known will of God, resulting in both deepening of their individual and corporate experience with God and an interest and concern of winning others for Christ. Nehemiah 9 is a recording of a revival. There's no doubt about it. It's a perfect picture. And in the next two Sundays, in fact, we're going to slow the brakes a little bit down. We're going to look at the first part of this 
prayer that is born out of a revival which is centering on gratitude to God, praise. And in this duet, you hear a second part which we'll look at next week, which is one of repentance and a desire to serve God. So that's the plan. And let's look then at verses one through five of chapter nine. On the 24th day of the same month, the Israelites assembled. Now remember in chapter eight, Pastor Michael laid this out, that for 22 days, well, the scriptures were read in chapter 8. Look at verse 9. Let's look at this. It says, The Nehemiah, the governor, Ezra, the priestly scribe, the Levites who were imparting understanding of the people, and to all of them, they, the day is holy. Do not mourn or weep. When they heard the scriptures, they were brought to their knees saying, We need to repent. And Nehemiah and Ezra said, No, 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 you cannot do that. This is Rosh Hashanah. This is around September. It's the new year. It's the festival of booze. We got to participate in all this. Then you can mourn. Now, I don't know about you. As a pastor, I would have never let them get off the hook. <laughs> We'd have said, no, no, we're going to have the, right now, the altar call. Get the sawdust out. We're going to walk the, the aisle and repent now. But not Ezra and Nehemiah. They said, no, no, no. First, we, we honor the Lord. We celebrate this. And what do the people do two days later? They don't pack their bags and leave. They're still there. Day 24, we see this happening. They assembled. They were wear, it says they were fasting and wearing sackcloth, their heads covered with dust. Those truly of Israelite descent, separated from all the foreigners, standing and confessing their sins and the sins of their ancestors. For one-fourth of the day, they stood in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God. So four to six hours were spending just reading scripture. And for another fourth, they were confessing and worshiping the Lord their God. Then the Levites, and there's a list of priests here, stood on the steps and called out loudly to the Lord their God. Another group of priests, Levites, said, stand up and bless your God. Let's look at these verses here because we're going to see this unfold. This sets the scene for us in this section. We're told that the people have set it apart themselves through both fasting, uh, we're going to see here lamenting by wearing sackcloth and throwing dust on their heads. Now that might sound a little crazy. Uh, sackcloth was a garment that was uh, well, it wouldn't be in the new fashion line for Vineyard Vines or for Ann Taylor, I can assure you. It was rough. It was coarse because it was made sometimes out of goat hair or camel hair, flax, sometimes cotton, but it wasn't a comfortable material. It wasn't meant to be comfortable because the sackcloth was worn as a token of mourning for the Israelites. It was a sign of submission. If you're taking notes, First Kings 20. It was of grief and humiliation and was occasionally worn by the prophets. And, it was, and, and we see here in verse 1 that not only did they wear sackcloth, but their heads were covered with dust. That seems strange to us. Uh, but there's a reason for this. Dust Either they would, they would wallow in the dust, they would throw it over their heads, or they would lick it. I know that's, I, I thought, now I got everyone's attention, right? <laughs> Why? Why would you do that? Because it was a shown, showing deep humiliation. It was showing grief. 
This group is moved both internally and externally over their sin. You want a revival? It starts with confession. There was no excuses. <laughs> you didn't hear, wait a minute, we just gave 52 days to build a wall. I mean, give us a break. We didn't have time to confess sin. Mm -mm. There are no excuses. There's no blame shifting. Well, that was our ancestors. They're responsible for this exile. You know, woe is us. You know, we, we're product of them. No. In fact, they're confessing. Notice verse 2. They're confessing the sins of their forefathers. Wow. There's, there's no blame shifting. There's no excuses. And there's no justification. Well, we've made sacrifices. Come on. You can be gracious with us, Lord. Mm -mm. The Puritan writer John Bunyan states it well. Sin is the dare of God's justice. The rape of his mercy, the jeer of his patience, the slight of his power, and the contempt of his love. Did you catch that? It's the dare of God's justice, the rape of his mercy, the jeer of his patience, the slight of his power, and the contempt of his love. Here's these Israelites. They've built a wall. They got a lot to celebrate. And yet as they hear the word of God, it pierces their hearts. And they said, we are a lousy lot. <laughs> we confess. 24 days? I mean, move on. No, no. <laughs> no. It says they're wearing sackcloth. They're fasting. In fact, notice the significance of the prayer that we're going to see it's a collective prayer. We're going to see this in starting in verse latter part of 5 all the way through the latter part of 30s into 37. It's a collective prayer. They're, they're praying not only for their sins, as we just stated, but their ancestors. And it's another reason why, and we're going to comment more on this, why the foreigners weren't involved. They're not part of the covenant that God has made with the Israelites. It's time to come clean. Stop playing games. And that's what they're, they're doing here. There, there's no political event or natural disaster that precipitated this prayer. It wasn't 9-11. It wasn't some event that all of a sudden, oh, man, we need to get on our knees and pray. No, it was simply by hearing the word of God. Wow. I had a student in New Testament survey years ago, and I said, how did you come to know the Lord? He said, I was in a hotel room reading and a Gideon's Bible, Romans, and I bit my knee before a holy God. Simply from hearing, reading the word. So every semester, I'd have him share his testimony until he graduated. Because I wanted people to hear, hey, it's the word of God. It can be known. It can pierce the heart. Because it's God who spoke it. All scripture is God-breathed. This wasn't a short prayer. Lord, forgive us. Let's move on. Now, I want to ask a prayer for Aunt Betsy, she's got a toenail that's ingrown, and then we got Uncle George, and he's losing hair. No, uh -uh. this is all about, Lord, we have sinned four to six hours of confession. In the revival that occurred in 1904, do you know how it started? Was a lady came forward and confessed her sin, and it broke out. The entire congregation, including the pastor, were on their knees repenting. Wow. 
The Levites play a key role, as we see here. The, the spiritual leadership is directly involved, and they are also, I can assure you, wearing sackcloth and throwing the dust over their heads. And what is going to be interesting as we look at the prayer, it's a tone of praise, which is shocking. Notice, even in the text, it tells us, it says, may you be blessed, O Lord, as we, we see this. And we're told in verse 3 that it was done with confessing and worship. It's an interesting combination. But you find this in Second Chronicles when Solomon is dedicating the temple, the people are confessing their sin and they're worshiping the Lord. I mean, think about it. To merely to confess with no worship is mere lip service and underestimates the links the loving Lord has gone to forgive us. And worship is born out of true confession. But merely to worship with no confession is to downplay the horrific effect of sin and the offense before a holy God. Clean hearts are required for worship. They go in tandem. It's, it's the two rails for the railroad or the train. You remove one, you're going to have an accident. You have to have confession and worship. Acts 26, Paul said, I declared to those in Damascus first and to those in Jerusalem and all Judea to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds consistent with repentance. That's what worship is. Worship is saying, Lord, here I am. You receive all glory in what I do, what I say, what I sing. And so in these first five verses, which is setting the scene for us as we get to the prayer, there are several key elements that pertain to a revival. And I want you to see these. You don't get anything else out of Hoffman today. Listen to this. This is what the word has for us. Number one, it's fasting. In other words, they're abstaining from normal activity. If you've been in a place in life where the bottom falls out and someone comes along and says, hey, you haven't eaten. And you say, I got too much on my mind to think about that. That's fasting. It's, it's where God is all-encompassing in, in my relationship with him. There's unity. They're assembled together. There, there's no bickering because they're all confessing their own sin, not somebody else's, <laughs> or pointing it out. There, there's separation from the world. Three times in verses three and four, it says, their God. This is their God. This is who we are related to. And again, in Leviticus 20, you must be holy to me because I am the Lord and I'm holy. And the Lord goes on to state, I have set you apart from the other peoples to be mine. That's what these Israelites are doing. That's why the foreigners are put out because they are a people that have a covenant with God and they are called to be holy. We, part of the covenant family, the new covenant, are called to be holy. We're gonna be looking at 1 Peter this fall and Peter reminds us we are to be holy. We're to be set apart. They're confessing their sin. Towns and Porter, again, in their book on revivals, state, usually when we pray for revival, we're thinking about the bad guys and we're telling God to go sick them. <laughs> it's like, great. He says, little do we realize that revival begins with us, the people of God. As a matter of fact, 
We've got a suggestion for those who want revival. Are you right? Don't pray for revival. Just repent of all known sin. Do everything you're supposed to do. Give God all, not part, but all, your time, your experience, and result, you will see a revival. Wow. True revival begins when the church faces their sin honestly. It's an affront to God And if we understand the gravity of sin and the implications of sin for our own life, I mean, pleasure there is, but only for a season. And once it has its claws in you, be very careful. Confession of sin, there's reading of Scripture. It's the key ingredient. In fact, you neglect the word. A church or a parachurch ministry that neglects the word, I will assure you will be derailed very quickly. That's why the elders, when we met, talking about the DNA of CBF, the Word of God has got to be right there. It is vital. Whether it's in the, in the children's area, when we're working with Truth 78 material, whether it's the teens meeting for Bible studies on Wednesday nights, or whether it's adult men, women's, the, the Bible must be central to what we do. And then finally, the, the last ingredient of a revival, as we see here in verses 1 through 5, is worshiping the Lord. The heart of every revival is a deep longing to glorify the name of the Lord. It's been said that as long as we are content to live without a revival, we will. <laughs> It's powerful, isn't it? And so we see these elements of fasting, of unity, of confession, focusing on the word, worshiping the Lord. These are all vital in these elements of what it takes for a true revival. By the way, it's not just praying, though that is vital. It cannot be a substitute for confession, worship, and obedience. I've heard groups say, well, we're praying for revival. That's great, but what else are you doing? Because in 1904, and in any other revival, whether it's the Great Awakening, the Second Great Awakening in the U.S., what occurred was a confession of sin along with prayer and along with obedience. They all tie hand in hand, and that's what we see in Nehemiah 9, which is just so exciting. So let's look at this prayer that's delivered. We're going to look only at the first portion which centers on praise this week. Next week, we'll center, uh, look at the latter part of the prayer, which deals more with confession. But let's start at verse 5, <clears throat> the second part of 5, and look at this prayer. May you be blessed, O Lord, our God, from age to age. May your glorious name be blessed. Uh, that reminds me of Nehemiah earlier. It's, it's about the name of the Lord being exalted. Not Nehemiah's, not the Israelites'. It says, you alone are the Lord. You made the heavens, even the highest heavens, along with all their multitude of stars, the earth and all that is in it, the sea and all that is in them. You impart life to them all, and the multitudes of heaven worship you. You are the Lord who chose Abraham, or Abram, and brought him forth from Ur of the Chaldees. You changed his name to Abraham when you perceived that his heart was faithful towards you. You established a covenant with him to give his descendants the land of Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Parasites, oh no, uh, and the Jebusites, and on the list goes, right, that God has given. You have fulfilled your promise for you 
are righteous. Listen, listen to what they're saying. This drips with theology. It says, you saw the affliction of our ancestors in Egypt. You heard their cry at the Red Sea. You performed awesome signs against Pharaoh, against his servants, and against all the people of his land. For you know that the Egyptians had behaved presumptuously against them. You made for yourself a name that is celebrated to this day. You split the sea before them. They crossed through the sea on the ground, but you threw those who pursued them into the depths like a stone into surging water. I love that. You guided them like a pillar of cloud by day and with a pillar of fire by night to illumine for them the path that they have traveled. You came down on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven. You provided them with judgments, true laws, and good statutes and commandments. You may know to them your holy Sabbath, you issued commandments, statutes, and laws to them through Moses, your servant. You provided bread for, from heaven for them in their time of hunger, and you brought forth water from the rock for them in their time of thirst. You told them to enter in order to possess the land that you had sworn to give them. Now, this sucker is loaded. So if you're taking notes, you want to see some things that are happening that are vital. This prayer in, in essence, and it's going to go on, summarizes the entire Old Testament. In fact, it's the most exhaustive uh, list of Old Testament events with a retro, um, kind of a reflective nature in the entire canon, Old and New Testament. The prayer moves, as we see from creation, goes to Abraham, the, Moses, the Exodus, the wilderness wanderings. It's going to go into the conquest and occupation later. What is Nehemiah doing? He's, Nehemiah 9 is, is taking the events of the past and providing a mouthpiece for contemporary events and concerns and, and what needs to happen in the life of God's people. And in these verses, you're going to see the Levites who are leading the congregation and celebrating God's mercy, his power, his righteousness, his covenant-keeping covenant -keeping salvation. In fact, as you look at this, the Lord is the subject of every sentence in the prayer. <laughs> you look at Abraham. Normally when Abraham's cited later in Jewish writings, it focuses on Abraham, not this prayer. prayer Abraham's the sidekick. It's, it's the Lord who is the subject. It's the Lord. In fact, normally it states in Genesis 15 that Abraham is righteous. Who's righteous here? Look what it says in verse 8. For you are righteous. The, 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 the Levites are taking us and focusing us on the Lord and, and how he has overseen and how he has led. Again, there's two parts to the prayer. The first is one of praise, which we're looking at this morning, and the second will be of confession. Notice in verse 5, the source of the praise. It's based on Yahweh. It's based upon his name, this one who is the great creator, the sustainer. Reminds me of Deuteronomy 4. Today, realize, carefully consider that the Lord is God in heaven above and on earth below. There is no other. Time and time again, scripture bases its teaching on God as the creator and the created order. Whether it pertains to sexuality in Romans 1, the role of men and women in 1 Corinthians 11, to deny God as the creator not only diminishes God's role, 
but creates numerous problems, I would argue, with biblical theology. God as creator is central to the story, is he not? <laughs> you, you, you do gymnastics around Genesis 1, 2, and 3, you're going to have serious problems later with books such as Romans or 1 Corinthians. Because Paul says, this is the created order. This is how God intended it. So you got a brown, take it up with God. He is the one who sustains all. And so the story goes, the, the prayer goes, it says you are the Lord God, the one who sits above. We see this in verse 6. It's repeated again in verse 7. It, it starts with this uncompromising acknowledgement on the uniqueness of God. It's rooted here, and if you want a revival, if you want a relationship with the Lord, you're going to have to come to grips with who is this God whom we serve. He's not the old man who wound a clock and is just twiddling his thumbs, hoping everything turns out okay. No, no, no. He's intimately involved. He sits supreme, and he reigns, and this is where the prayer starts. One commentator writes, the theological perspective of this prayer includes non-human participants. Did you catch that? The angelic host and non-Israelite locations, the whole earth. Then this writer states, showing that God is much bigger than any other God, whether it's in Susa or Jerusalem, Samaria, it doesn't matter. Yahweh is supreme. And he writes, and is in control of much more than the tiny landmass known as Judah. <laughs> this is our God. This is whom we serve. That God in verse 7, it, it's tied, and I love how it starts. You are the Lord God, which ties us back to verse 6. And, and I think it's saying, this one who is so creative, who placed the stars, is the same one who placed Abraham into this equation. Because see this. We look at this. Abraham is brought in in Nehemiah 9. It's intentional. Abraham plays a distinctive role in the life of Israel, and it's tied to the land. What have these people been looking for for 90-some years? They've been in exile in Babylon, right? Weeping down by the waters of Babylon, waiting to get back to what? The land, the promised land. This prayer starts with the Lord and is ties with Abraham. And look how it ends. I'm, uh, this section of verse 15, this first portion. You told them in order to possess the land that you have given them. Abraham's appearance time and time again in Jewish writings, especially the prophetic writings, and there's several texts I could give you, but it exemplifies the centrality of this figure and, and the notion that there will be restoration because God keeps his promises. And, and Abraham, I mean, you, you look at, there's several features that orbit around Abraham when he's mentioned in writings. And all of them are seen in Nehemiah 9. First is divine choice. We see that here. It's God who initiates. Abram didn't bring anything to the table. Oh, he's faithful and God will honor that. But God chose him in Ur, the Chaldees, which is the second part we'll get to in a minute. And again, it's very theocentric, this prayer, but it's God who has selected Abram and then called him Abraham. And again, he's brought from Ur of Chaldees, which is a foreign land. He's being brought to this promised place, which is an encouragement to those who are being exiled. Ur, by the way, 
at the time of Abraham had running water. If you want to see the treasures of Ur, you either have to go to the Louvre or you can go to the art museum in Cincinnati, which has some of the treasures. They're spectacular. These are not some backward bumpkins. Ur was the place to be. And, and God didn't even tell Abram where you're going. He just simply said, go. And in the process, he loses his father, who dies along the way. Remember the story? But he goes. There's a name change. Again, the Lord is initiating. The Lord is showing ownership. He does it with Saul to Paul. There's multiple descendants that are promised to Abraham. When you study the life of Abraham, it ties in with Genesis 12. It's a key text. If you're taking notes, Genesis 12, 1 through 3, it's called the Abrahamic Covenant. And in this, the Lord says to Abraham, go out from your country, your relatives and your father's household to the land that I will show you. He does not even give him a GPS and say, here it is, so you know the final destination. Right? I, I'm not getting in the car, I'll tell you, to, I mean, <laughs> ask my wife, do you have the map up yet? Where, where are we going? Which way do we go? Make sure you use ways, you know. Uh, where are we headed? No, and, and the text goes on to state, the Lord says to Abram, then I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you and I will make your name great so that you will exemplify divine blessing. I will bless those who bless you, but the one who treats you lightly, I will curse so that all the families of the earth may receive blessing through you. And so divine choice being brought out of Ur, the name change, multiple descendants. Another thing that we see every time Abraham is mentioned and see it in Nehemiah 9 is the, his love, Nehemiah's, or Abraham's love and loyalty to God. Isaiah 41, God says of Abraham in Isaiah 41, he's my friend. Wow. Wow. And, and, and there's one other thing which we've highlighted already, and that is Abraham is always associated with the land. Ezekiel 33, son of man, the ones living in those ruins in the land of Israel, saying, Abraham was the only one man, yet he possessed the land, but we are many. Surely the land has been given for us as a possession. Do you see, and look at Nehemiah 9, verses 7 and 8, the land is promised not only to Abraham, but also to his descendants. This is unique. You often don't see this when Abraham's mentioned. It's the promise to Abraham implication that's to his descendants. But Nehemiah highlights this. Abba Shalom guy, in an article at the Hebrew University, recently wrote, I argue here in Nehemiah 9 that Israel's ownership of the land is the thematic axis that binds the two parts of the prayer it's, it's tying it in. This is a group who have longed to come back to the land. The walls show the identity of Jerusalem. It, it, it's God keeping his promises. And as this revival breaks out, confession, it's first recognized, God, you are the sovereign one. In fact, you look at this prayer and you see that God is the subject. God was tentative to the people. God was powerful enough to deliver. He was all-knowing. He treasures his name, verse 10, a name that, you know, he's going to preserve and it's glorious in verse 
5, it's mentioned, and God judges Israel's enemies. He moves in this prayer, or the Levites move in the prayer to talk of the Exodus tradition, which is also this idea of bringing the exiles back to the land, something our audience is very familiar with. It's a source of encouragement, a recognition. And as Nehemiah rehearses, or the Nehemiah 9 rehearses God's oversight, we see in verses 12, and through 15, God's provisions, don't we? If you're making a list, it's, he guides them by pillars. In other words, God didn't abandon them. Not in the daytime, not at night. God didn't take a siesta. He didn't take an evening rest. Even in the midst of a storm, he's awake. Right? Granting revelation, we see. God communed with them. He wanted intimacy with his people. He, the text tells that he spoke to them from the heavens, giving them the law, the commandments. In other words, protection and guidance. And Nehemiah 9, 12 through 15, talks about God providing substance uh, and water. He cares, he provides. Note that the prayer never mentions the Israelites complaining questioning Moses, doubting God's ability to deliver. I mean, good grief. That's why Moses lost it at the rock, right? This was not a rewriting of the nation's history. Oh, there's a lot we could have said up to this point. For there's no denial that there were problems. And, and Nehemiah is not afraid to talk about those problems later in the prayer. But at this point, the focus of the prayer is simply to praise God for showing his power, his grace, and his commitment to the people of Israel. This first part of the prayer reiterates God is all-powerful. God is all-knowing. God is gracious and loving. He demands to be glorified, and he keeps his promises. So it's no wonder in verse 15, look at this. As we end this first section, the prayer states, you told them to enter in order to possess the land you had sworn to give them. Why? Because you're a promise-keeping, all-powerful God. That's whom we serve. And so what do we do with that? How do we apply this? I've got three words for you today. First is one of dependence. We are dependent on the Lord. The Israelites recognize that. We must be reminded of that. Can you imagine if I gave you the latest MacBook, you know, and, and you said, great, I need a new calculator. And that's all you use it for, is calculating. Well, it's a poor misuse of the computer. Now, the Lord is far greater than a MacBook Pro. But the, sadly, often the Lord is placed uh, or seen as a genie. He's called upon when things are bad, you know, that's crunched the numbers. But apart from that, mm. or he might be reserved for a cuss word or perhaps neglected altogether. How ironic <laughs> that God has surrounded us with his creation. He's reminded he's in charge. Yesterday I was deadheading some of our flowers and this bumblebee got the best of me. My hands started to swell. And I was like, yes, Lord, you're in charge. Kill the bee, right? Uh, it's just, he, he is the great creator. He's in charge. 
Piper writes, when we are dealing with the living God, a reverential, humble, glad recognition that we are dependent, God is independent. We are contingent, God is absolute. We are defined, God is the definer. We are held in being by his will, he is an absolute being. Lukewarmness is not part of the equation for a believer, or it should not be. That's why John, I think in 1 John, he says the believer doesn't sin. Now, some English versions translate it as going on sinning, habitual idea. But I, I don't think he, that the Greek works there. What is John saying? Is it earlier, he says, if we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive. Yes. But what John is saying, everything is, is black and white for him. Either you love God or you hate him. Either you love your neighbor or you hate him. You either don't sin or you sin. Sin is so foreign, it's like oil and water to the life of the believer. We are dependent on him. And Romans 12 is clear. Presenting our lives as a sacrifice to the Lord is our reasonable service. So dependence. Another word for this morning is gratitude. I mean, you look at what God has done, and that's what the Israelites are doing. Who are they? Why didn't you take the Hittites or the Parasites? Why'd you pick the Israelites? What did they bring to the table? God said, I chose them. They're mine. I'll make them an example. I'm going to use them. And, and let's take it to now. Why did he choose you and me as followers of him? He doesn't need us. But God has been so fit to be gracious. Should we not break out in praise? Colossians 2, therefore, just as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built on him in your faith, just as you were taught, overflowing with thankfulness. There it is. <laughs> Randy Smith writes, for the Christian, it's all about understanding God's amazing grace and then responding with eternal attitude of gratitude. It's God's grace that motivates us, and it's God's grace that empowers to obey. Obedience is not there to earn grace, and that's key. Why do we do? Christianity is not about a bunch of do's and don'ts. It's because I do what I do because I am so grateful for what God has done for me. And how do we know if we're grateful? Well, let me give you three little tests, litmus tests that you can use. Number one, Examine our prayer life. How much airtime do we spend simply reflecting on who God is and what he has done? This whole prayer, it's not later do we see a confession. The, the Israelites are moving through this prayer, Nehemiah 9, and next week we're gonna see they will bend their knee. Now, yes, they've had sackcloth and the dust has been flying through the air, but they start out with praise and an exaltation of the Lord. So examine your prayer life. We need to examine our conversation, uh, our conversations. Are we wishing we had more of X, Y, and Z? Are we known as a person who's constantly complaining about something? Or is our speech filled with words of such as blessings? I'm so blessed. Thank you. What a praise. Uh, I had a friend, every other word I think he used was Glory. It's a good reminder of what God has done. And third, we need to examine our giving of resources. I'm not talking just about the pocketbook, but our time. They're perfect ways to determine how grateful we really are to the Lord. No, this is mine. <laughs> no. It was like 24 days. They got crops to harvest. September. 
No, they're there to honor the Lord. And so dependence, gratitude, and finally devotion. We must live our lives motivated by our love for his glory. 1 Corinthians 10, a familiar text. Whatever you do, eat or drink, do everything for the glory of God. For the Christian, it's all about understanding God's amazing grace and then responding with eternal gratitude. It's God's grace that motivates. There's a gentleman in our church, a member, who serves as a deacon, Todd Herb. And Todd, if you'd come up, I saw you earlier. I asked Todd to share his testimony, um, not to put him on the spot, but I think he's one who's embodied these three areas that, that we see here of dependence, gratitude, and devotion. Thanks, Todd. When uh, Pastor David contacted me two weeks ago and asked if I'd share my testimony this Sunday, uh, I told him that about two weeks prior to that, I had been praying to God and asking him that if there would ever be an opportunity to share my story in front of the congregation that God would show me. Well, here I am. Uh, but what I want to emphasize is uh, this is not my story. I just happen to be one of the characters that he's chosen to be a part of his story. So with that in mind, here goes. <laughs> Breaking news. Never in a million years in my wildest dreams would I have thought that Friday, December 20th, 2013, would have been a day that made breaking news on all the local news stations. These are the kinds of stories that you see happening to someone else, the other guy or the other family. How did the most tragic day in my life begin? It was a Friday and, and it wasn't just any Friday. This was the Friday before Christmas holiday. A day that I looked forward to and found myself counting down every year because I knew that I would have the next two weeks off spending time with my family. It was a typical start of my day, getting up and going to work early, which I was accustomed to being in the landscaping business. Shortly after arriving to work, I realized that I had forgotten a folder at home, one that I needed for that day. I knew my wife had a doctor's appointment that morning, so I thought she could drop the folder off on her way to her appointment. So I texted my wife, Mary Lynn, and asked if she could drop the folder off on her way to the appointment. So Mary Lynn arrived at my office about 9.30. I was in my office chair sitting and talking to my business partner, Brian, when Mary Lynn walked in. I remember visiting uh, with her at one point, and in the conversation as she was talking with Brian, I was looking up at her and watching, and I remember vividly at that moment and saying to myself, she just had an absolute radiant look to her face. We finished our conversation and she left for her appointment. That was the last time I saw her alive. I'm absolutely convinced that this encounter was a gift from God. Mary Lynn rarely stopped by my office, but this was a divine encounter. Fast forward to that Friday afternoon. I arrived home from work at about 4.30, and as I pulled into the garage, I noticed that Mary Lynn's car was gone. 
I assumed that she was out running errands, and as I walked into the house, our dog Lucy greeted me at the door, which was fairly typical, and I started looking around in the house and things looked just a little out of place. For instance, the microwave door was open with a bowl of food inside and another bowl of food on the counter, which I thought, well, that was strange or odd for that time of the day. Too late for lunch, but too early for dinner. Then I saw that there was a light on in our basement and I thought that maybe our daughter Kelly was at home and maybe watching a movie. So I went downstairs and was looking around calling out Kelly's name, but didn't see anyone. Many of the lights were on, but no one was around. Just as I started to come back upstairs, our dog Lucy came down in the basement, which was really unusual because she didn't like to be in the basement. In fact, she went over to the door that goes into our mechanical room and was bending down low, just kind of sniffing and looking at the door threshold. So I opened the door and immediately saw 10 feet in front of me, my wife lying on the floor, motionless, and had a lot of trauma to her head, which I could tell. At first I thought maybe she had fallen and hit her head on the concrete floor. And as I approached her and was about to kneel down, and look at her injuries, I noticed off to my left was my daughter Kelly, lying just a few feet with the same exact head injury. At that moment, I cried out as loud as I could cry or yell, oh my God, oh my God. And it wasn't an irreverent cry, it was a plea to God at that time. I then immediately dialed 911, and at that very moment of dialing for help, I remember thinking to myself, my life has now changed forever, knowing how serious the injury were, injuries were to my wife and daughter. I also remember thinking that this can't be happening to me, or at least, how could it? Why could it be happening at all? The 911 operator asked me to check vital signs, breathing, pulse, movement. There was nothing. She asked me if I knew CPR, and I said no. She said that she would instruct me on what to do. So I put my phone on speakerphone so I could free up both hands, but my thought was, who should I work on first? I was the closest to Kelly, so I started to roll her over and administer CPR, and just then the doorbell rang. The 911 operator told me to go answer the door, so I ran upstairs, and it was a Westfield police officer. I led him down to the basement and pointed to the room they were in, but he wouldn't let me go back in the room with him and told me to go back upstairs and wait for the paramedics. So as I went upstairs and was standing at the door waiting on the paramedics to arrive, I remember a very poignant moment in my thoughts. I found myself thinking about God and where he was and why he was allowing any of this to happen. I had a choice to make about what I was going to do with God and my faith right then and there at that very moment, very vivid. I remember thinking I have two options. The first was to turn my back on him and run as fast and as far from him as possible. Was I going to blame him, be angry, and reject him? Or the second choice was to run to, 
run to him seeking his comfort and embracing his love. Well, there really was only one option, and that was to accept what I knew as his peace, comfort, and strength. In fact, the days, weeks, and months that followed that moment, God's presence never felt as close. I have to describe it to, I have described it to people as that it was a feeling as if he literally, literally was holding me in the palms of his hand lifting me up and giving me a supernatural strength that was definitely not of my own ability. The paramedics arrived and I showed them where the basement stairs were. Almost immediately after they arrived, another police officer showed up. He asked me to identify myself and after some brief conversation, he led me out to his police car. While waiting on the police car, there was a myriad of ambulances, fire trucks, police cars blaring down our street. It was all so surreal. I was in a state of confusion and shock. It was as if everything was happening in slow motion. The rest of the evening was a blur. I was taken to the Westfield Police Station and questioned about the details and the events of that day. Many family and friends gathered at the police station. They too were questioned but for me, they were there for love and support. The ensuing days were filled with funeral plans, meetings, police meetings with police detectives, and uh, with interviews and questions. The big question remained, who could have done this, and why would anyone invade my, ho my house and bring harm to my family? Those questions were answered on Thursday, December 26th, the day after Christmas, and it was the wake for my wife, Mary Lynn, and daughter, Kelly. My immediate family was gathered at the church for a private time together with loved ones. The wake was scheduled to start at 4 p.m. that afternoon. At about 3.30, the police detectives that were working on the case came to the church and asked us to meet with them in a private room. It was then that we were told that there had been an arrest of the person they thought committed the crime. It was a young man by the name of Christian Haley. He was a former employee at our company who I had fired after only working there for about three months. On one occasion during his employment, he had worked at my house and thought that I was apparently wealthy and would have valuable things in my house that he could take. I believe his motive was revenge and sought to harm or hurt me and my family. Although I ended up being the surviving victim of his crime, the effect that it has had on me was deeper than as if he had taken my life, which on many occasions I wish that I would have been the one, I would have been the one to lose my life and not my wife and daughter. But even in the midst of finding out about who committed the crime and how Mary Lynn and Kelly's deaths occurred, God's grace was sufficient for even, a, for even an occasion such as this. The verse in 2 Corinthians 1, 3 through 4, have come alive to me and has been true of God's comfort in my life. And it says, Praise be to God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion, the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. So those are the details that revolve around the most tragic day in my life. The question... The questions that I've had are, what do I do with my life moving forward? 
What does God expect of me? What are his plans and purposes in allowing all of this to happen to me and my family? The verse that has spoken to me deeply is Luke 9:23. It was Jesus speaking to the disciples after the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. And he challenged them by saying, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross daily and follow me. The reason that this verse spoke so deeply to me is that I realized that my life is not my own. It's God's purposes that matter the most. Not my own self-gratification or self-fulfilling interests or general, general selfishness. I need to be completely surrendered to him and walk in obedience. Trust me, there have been many occasions when I have asked God, why me? I have to trust the verse in Proverbs 19.21. Many are the plans in a man's heart, but it is the Lord's purpose that prevails. On Monday, February 23rd, 2015, Christian Haley finally confessed to the crimes. This spared a lengthy jury trial and no doubt would have that it would have been a very painful and lengthy trial. I believe it was another one of God's evidences that he showed up and proved that he was in control. All along through different legal proceedings that took almost a year and a half to complete, my family's prayer was, Lord, your will be done in this matter and you are in control. I relied on, verse, on the verse in Deuteronomy 32:35, vengeance belongs to me, I will repay. Another passage that I found comfort in that God was in control is in Psalm 34, verses 15 through 18. And it says, The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their cry. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil to blot out their name from the earth. The righteous cry out, and the Lord hears them. He delivers them from all their troubles. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. So on Friday, May 22nd, 2015, Christian Haley was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. I have not had the opportunity to speak to Christian on any occasion. There were numerous times I saw him in a courtroom and none of those occasions did he ever show signs of emotion or remorse. If there was ever an opportunity to encounter Christian face to face and he showed genuine signs of remorse and regret and sympathy for what he did to my family, and if he asked my forgiveness, I would extend the same forgiveness Christ has given me. So what is the message that I wanna leave with you specific to my story? Hope, that there is hope in the midst of tragedy or difficult circumstances for all of us. I believe that God has shown to me and proven to me and used me time and again to show others that even in the midst of the darkest moments, the deepest tragedies in life, that there is still hope in living. The hope and promise of better days ahead by putting, on, putting our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, on relying upon him for giving strength and courage to face another day, one last verse that illustrates this for me is in Isaiah 41.10. It says, Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be afraid, for I am your God. 
I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will hold on to you with my righteous right hand. This is just one of many verses that can be found all through the Bible that illustrates God's life-giving hope, strength, comfort, courage, compassion, and love. He is ready, willing, and able to give to all in abundance for those who call upon his name. I'm living proof of that. Thank you. Well, like Todd and the Israelites, there's a recognition that we are dependent on the Lord, aren't we? We, we flow out of gratitude even in the difficult times. Remember where the Israelites are. Oh, they've got the wall built. But they're, the poverty, the oppression, they still have the enemies surrounding them. And yet they exalt the Lord in gratitude and then devotion. Let's pray. Father, we come to you reminded of John Newton's words. When I see you as you are, I praise you as I ought. <laughs> it's why folks such as the testimony we heard from Todd or the Israelites can say, no, we, we praise you, we exalt you because you alone are Lord. We thank you and we praise you.